This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. First and Last by Hilaire Belloc Chapter 1 On Weighing Anchor Personally, I should call it Getting It Up, but I have always seen it in print called Weighing Anchor, and if it is in print one must bow to it. It does weigh. There are many ways of doing it. The best, like all good things, has gone forever, and this best way was a thing called a capstan, to have sticking out from it movable and fitted into its upper rim other things called capstan bars. These men would push singing a song, while on the top of the capstan sat a man playing the flute or fiddle, or some other instrument of music. You and I have seen it in pictures. Our sons will say that they wish they had seen it in pictures. Our sons will say it is all a lie, and was never in anything but the pictures, and they will explain it by some myth or other. Another way is to take two turns of a rope around the donkey engine, paying in and coiling while the engine clanks. And another way on a small boat is a sort of jack arrangement by which you give little jerks to a ratchet and wheel, and at last it looses its hold. Sometimes, in this last way, it will not lose its hold at all. Then there is a way of which I proudly boast that is the only way I know, which is to go forward and haul at the line until it comes or does not come. If it does not come, you will not be so cowardly or so mean as to miss your tide for such a trifle. You will cut the line and tie a float on it, and pray heaven that unto whatever place you run that place will have moorings ready and free. When a man weighs anchor in a little ship, or a large one, he does a jolly thing. He cuts himself off and he starts for freedom, and for the chance of things. He pulls the jib a weather, he leans to her slowly, pulling round. He sees the wind getting into the mainsail, and he feels that she feels the helm. He has her on a slant of the wind, and he makes out between the harbour piers. I am supposing, for the sake of good luck, that it is not blowing bang down the harbour mouth, nor, for the matter of that, bang out of it. I am supposing, for the sake of good luck to this venture, that in weighing anchor you have the wind, so that you can sail with it full and by, or freer still, right past the walls, until you are well into the tide outside. You may tell me that you are so rich and your boat is so big that there have been times when you have anchored in the very open, and that all this does not apply to you. Why, then, your thoughts do not apply to me, nor to the little boat I have in mind. In the weighing of anchor and the taking of adventure, and of the sea, there is an exact parallel to anything that a man can do in the beginning of any human thing, from his momentous setting out upon his life and early manhood, to the least decision of his present passing day. It is a very proper emblem of a beginning. It may lead him to that kind of muddle and setback which attaches only two beginnings, or it may get him fairly into the weather, and yet he may find a little way outside that he has to run for it, or to beat back to harbour, or more generously it may lead him a long and steady cruise, in which he shall find a profit and make distant rivers and continue to increase his log by one good landfall after another. 
But the whole point of weighing anchor is that he has chosen his weather and his tide, and that he is setting out. The thing is done. You'll very commonly observe that in land affairs, if good fortune follows a venture, it is due to the marvellous excellence of its conductor, but if ill fortune, then to evil chance alone. Now it is not so with the sea. The sea drives truth into a man like salt. A coward cannot long pretend to be brave at sea, nor a fool to be wise, nor a prig to be a good companion, and any venture connected with the sea is full of venture and can pretend to be nothing more. Nevertheless, there is a certain pride in keeping a course through different weathers, in making the best of a tide, in using cat's paws in a dull race, and generally in knowing how to handle the thing you steer, and to judge the water and the wind. Just because men have to tell the truth once they get into tide water, what little is due to themselves and their success therein, they are proud of and acknowledge. If your sailing venture goes well, sailing reader, take just pride in it. There will be the less need for me to write some few years hence upon the art of picking up moorings, though I confess I would rather have written on that so far as the fun of writing was concerned. For picking up moorings is a far more tricky and amusing business than getting it up. It differs with every conceivable circumstance of wind and tide and harbour and rig and freeboard and light and then there are so many stories to tell about it. As how once a poor man picked up a rich man's moorings at cows and was visited by an aluminum boat, all splendid in the morning sun. Or again, how a stranger who had made Orford Haven, that very difficult place, on the very top of an equinoctial springtide, picked up a racing mark buoy, taking it to be moorings, and dragged it with him all the way to Attleboro and that right before the town of Orford, so making himself hateful to the Orford people. But I digress. The End of Chapter 1